Good morning. My name is Linnea Gibbs, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes. So please go ahead and follow along in your Bible or on the screens on either side. I will be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 from the New English Translation. Here is another enigma that occurs on earth. Sometimes there are righteous people who get what the wicked deserve, and sometimes there are wicked people who get what the righteous deserve. I said, this also is an enigma. So I recommend the enjoyment of life, for there is nothing better on earth for a person to do except to eat, drink, and enjoy life. So joy will accompany him in his toil during the days of his life, which God gives him on earth. When I tried to gain wisdom and to observe the activity on earth, even though it prevents anyone from sleeping day or night, then I discerned all that God has done. No one really comprehends what happens on earth. Despite all human efforts to discover it, no one can ever grasp it. Even if a wise person claimed that he understood he would not really comprehend it. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here. And today we're going to continue in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're asking the question, what's the point? What is the point? So what's the point? What's the point of your life? What's the point of mine? What's the point of our individual and collective existence? And today the question is, what is the point of how we live our life if we have these powers sort of at work within us? There is such a thing as injustice like we read. The wicked get what the righteous deserve and the righteous get what the wicked deserve. Under that kind of reality, what's the point? How do you think about life? Why would you even bother? What's your responsibility? Are you just a victim? These are some of the light, fair questions that the preacher is asking today. And I don't know about you, but uh, I'm okay with this kind of doom and gloom, sort of ultimate reality thinking that Ecclesiastes forces us to, because my personality naturally is kind of melancholic and analytical, and uh, I'm sort of an ideation, futuristic person. But uh, some of you have expressed that you're tired of the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> this is a little too much reality uh, for you. I totally get that. Uh, today is a little bit dark as well, uh, as you can tell from the reading. And after today, we have about three weeks left of Ecclesiastes. We're going to skip one chapter. I haven't decided which one that's yet. And then we're going we're gonna to move on to a lighter book, the book of James, uh, which if you know, it's not a very light book. It's a very meaty and kind of um, in-your-face kind of book. Uh, immediately, the rubber meets the road in that book, so we're going to dive into that. Uh, but today, uh, I want to ask the question... If there are lots of powers at work all around us that we can't control, like circumstances, like death, like uh, wickedness and authority uh, figures and structures that aren't kind or just, 
how do we approach it? What's our role in that kind of reality? And I want to suggest to you that it's your move, nevertheless, that you have a responsibility to live your life well. Not somebody else's, not change everything else, but yourself. You lead yourself well. You figure out what your move is, and you make it. And uh, I'm not talking about you finding strength or competence uh, to do it all in your own strength. I'm not talking about you being a self-deterministic person uh, who feels fully capable and in control of your life. That's not what I'm talking about. But what does it mean then to respond well under such circumstances, such realities? Here's a quote uh, from a book that uh, I think ties in really well to our series, this one and even the one before. And I'm going to be quoting uh, this book a few times today. This one says, Ultimately, man should not ask what the meaning of his life is, but rather must recognize that it is he who is asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. To life, he can only respond by being responsible. So this man, Viktor Frankl, he was a psychiatrist and a neurologist. Uh, He was captured by the Nazis, and he survived four concentration camps. And he made lots of astute observations, and he captures it in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And if you haven't read this book, I would put this on my list of top Jewish authors. Um, I was listening out some of my favorite books this week, and uh, three of them were by rabbis or uh, uh, Jewish uh, men, and this uh, definitely is top three here. Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I want to recommend this for this uh, series and also for the last one. Um, I watched a movie this week uh, on Netflix, and it was a documentary about the famous uh, life coach, um, Tony Robbins. Has anybody heard of or have engaged any of Tony Robbins' content? You won't be embarrassed or mocked. You can raise your hands. Uh, it's a brand new movie that came out this year, and it's called I'm Not Your Guru. And it's kind of a strange movie, and I wasn't sure what my takeaway should be from the movie, but a lot of it is sort of just powerful reframing. So horrible things happen to you, and he says, actually, wonderful things happen to you. And then people are like, oh my gosh, my life is wonderful. And that's sort of the thrust of it. And you have power and you have choice and you live your life strong and well. And and then you get all pumped up and then you go do that. And that's the premise of the movie. But it was interesting because they follow these four characters in the movie who go through this uh, conference, six-day conference with Tony Robbins called Date with Destiny. And they capture in video... Uh, these people having these powerful experiences of supposed healing and inspiration, and they make promises to themselves to change their life. And they uh, testify that their life has been changed forever. And then, because it's a movie, we get to hear what happened to them a year later. And their lives turned out differently than what they thought. You know, they, they didn't have all the powers necessary within themselves or even in their support system to do what they were hoping they were going to do. And there was a kind of honesty about 
the limitations of uh, interacting in a conference or even meeting somebody famous and popular like Tony Robbins. What about you? What are you going to do with your life? What's your move? What do you need to do? And that's the question I want us to ask today. Here are uh, four categories of powers that uh, the Ecclesiastes author says we have to deal with. Number one is found in verse four. It says, surely the king's authority is absolute. And this is the uh, preacher's way of uh, naming, acknowledging the fact that there is such a thing as authority on earth. You don't have all of the power on the planet. You have a government that you live under. You have authority figures, personalities, persons in your life. You have structures. You have rules and regulations and laws that you can't overcome. You are subject to authority. And the king may be good. The king may be evil. The king may be just or unjust. The king may understand or not your circumstances. But nevertheless, you have to deal with the king's authority. And then verse 7. Surely no one knows the future and no one can tell another person what will happen. Just as no one has power over the wind to restrain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. The preacher is acknowledging that the the fact of the future and the fact of death is a power we don't have control over. It would be as silly as us trying to redirect the wind. You can't do that. You don't have the power, the sheer willpower, or the competence, or the smarts to know how to do that. None of us know when we're going to die. The scriptures teach that God has appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Do you know your future? We don't even know what's going to happen the very next minute. Last night, I was woken up twice. Once, right as I was falling asleep, uh, a vacuum cleaner attachment fell off the wall. And it was really loud. And we, Susie and I, were both startled awake. Didn't know that was going to happen. And then this morning, at about 6 in the morning, uh, we were startled awake because one of our kids fell off their bed. (laughs) Right above our bedroom. And we hesitated. We knew what happened. We thought, ah, let's just wait and see. Is there, a, is there a cry? What kind of cry is it? So being the good father I am, I sent my wife upstairs to go check it out. Didn't know that was going to happen. Didn't know that was going to be part of my day. My sleep schedule has now been thrown off by about an hour and a half by these two incidences. I don't know the future. Verse 9 says, sometimes one person dominates other people to their harm. This is the preacher talking about the power of other people. I don't know if you figured this out yet, but you can't control other people. Amen? No, you're still going to try? It doesn't work. You can't control another person by virtue of the fact that they are not you. And here's the real mind bender. You can't even control you, let alone other people. And then we have not just other people, uh, but subcategory of that is we have bad people 
Verse 10. Not only that, but I have seen the wicked approaching. There are always bad people coming your way. You have to know this about life. They are always approaching. They're going to find their way to you somehow. And some people experience you as bad people approaching. (laughs) And then we have this general category of injustice. Verse 11 and following says, When a sentence is not executed at once against the crime, the human heart is encouraged to do evil. A sinner might commit a hundred crimes and still live a long time. Sometimes there are righteous people who get what the wicked deserve, and sometimes there are wicked people who get what the righteous deserve. There is very real injustice on the planet. Now, these are just some of the powers at work all around us that we have absolutely little control over. What's your response to all of this? How do you live in such a world? And, this, and the preacher gives us two pieces of advice that I want us to spend the rest of our time on. Uh, it's found uh, twice, verse 12 and 13. It talks about this idea of standing in fear before God. So the preacher lists all these ways that our world is messed up, describes these powers that we can't control, and then asks the question, what are you supposed to do? And he says, you have to live in fear of God. Stand in fear of God. What does this mean? I want to break it down for you. Number one, it means that you, regardless of what powers are at work around you, you live your conscience. Allow your life to be dictated by your conscience. Now, your human conscience isn't the end-all, be-all, because the human conscience can be influenced. It can be sensitive or it can be dull. You can have a heart of flesh which is soft and responsive, or you can have a heart that's grieved. Uh, you, you could have grieved your conscience so much that now your heart is hard, and you don't respond in the same ways. Your mind has changed. It's been warped. You think differently. But your conscience is always a good starting place. It's a minimum of how we should live. It's not the ceiling, but it's the floor. We have to live on this floor. Live your conscience. No matter what the powers at work are doing around you, even if you see wicked people getting rewarded as if they were righteous, even if you are under an unjust authority or an absolute authority, even if you see bad people approaching, you still, as far as it depends on you, Live your conscience. Uh, One of my favorite musicians is a man by the name of Rich Mullins. He lived by uh, Franciscan vows. He lived a celibate life. He lived a uh, life of poverty. And I really um, kind of idolize him and respect the way, not the perfect life he lived. He was a chain smoker. He drank Diet Coke as his only beverage uh, liquid you know, source in his life. Uh, he was a chaotic and uh, unpredictable person. I think it was uh, most people who were in his life had a love-hate relationship with him. But nevertheless, he lived uh, a beautiful life. 
And uh, he rewrote Psalm 139 in a song called Nothing is Beyond You. And I want to read you these words. It says this, Where could I go? Where could I run? Even if I found the strength to fly, and if I rose on the wings of the dawn and crashed through the corner of the sky, if I sailed past the edge of the sea, even if I made my bed in hell, still there you would find me. Because nothing is beyond you. You stand beyond the reach of our vain imaginations, our misguided piety. The heavens stretch to hold you, and deep cries out to deep, singing that nothing is beyond you. Time cannot contain you. You fill eternity. Sin can never stain you. Death has lost its sting. And I cannot explain the way you came to love me, except to say that nothing is beyond you. And if I should shrink back from the light so that I can sink into the dark, if I take my cover and close my eyes, even then you would see my heart, and you'd cut through all my pain and rage. The darkness is not dark to you, and night's as bright as day, singing that nothing is beyond you. Nothing is beyond you. And I find this truth really helpful when I think about how to live my conscience. And this is my personal experience, and I want to invite you to think about your own personal experience, even if you are not somebody who believes in God uh, or an outside being that influences you. Now, I want you to think about this. This is my experience. When I violate my conscience, and I do this every day, I violate some, my conscience in some way, shape, or form. Every time I violate my conscience, I am aware that I violated my conscience. And my experience of violating my conscience is that it's not just I that's aware of the fact that I violated my conscience. But I'm very aware that there is an outside authority that I've also grieved. That there is some loving present and connected being that's not me and when i violate my conscience my distinct experience is that i am also grieving this other being now as a uh, believer in god and a follower of christ i believe that's what the bible calls the holy spirit i really think that when i violate my conscience i also grieve the holy spirit it causes somebody else to feel sad And when I'm negotiating my response to the violation of my conscience, I hear my own inner person negotiating with this outside person about what I ought to do since now I violated my conscience. And so if I talk harshly to one of my kids or uh, there is some uh, um, critical way that I've interacted with Susie about something or even uh, when I violate... Uh, you know, uh, just consumer ethics or something. I feel a little prick in my conscience. And then I feel the conversation starting to happen between myself, the id, the soul, the, my brain, my heart. I feel that exchange between that, what I would call the self, and something that's distinctly not the self. And I want to invite you to think about that. Is it possible that no matter how much you try to hide and how much darkness you seek, that when you violate your conscience, there is another being that's also talking to you about that. Now, I've interacted with enough uh, 
human, enough human beings to have heard this uh, confession from unbelievers and believers alike that when they do something they feel is wrong, that they should not have done, there's sort of a battle that starts raging inside. And I want to tell you that, first, it's the human conscience. It's the image of God that's in us. But it's also the presence of the divine. And even if you're not a believer, there's still some influence an experience of contact with the divine that's near you. There's, there's a proximate presence, at minimum, of God around you. And you can't escape God's presence. Whether you're living or whether you're dead, whether you're hiding or whether you're in the light, no matter how much you try to push God away, there God is. And so the first recommendation that the preacher makes here is to live your conscience. Stand in fear of God. And if you're here and you're not somebody that believes in God, I really do challenge you to try to live as an atheist. Try to live as if nothing else matters. You're just a byproduct of a materialistic process. You ought not to be so conscious of something as silly as your conscience. If that's all you are, if you're just a byproduct of a materialistic process, you're just material, you're just stuff, you're just uh, uh, concrete, you're just uh, cells, you're just molecules, you're just matter. If that's true, then your conscience should never get in the way of what you need to do to succeed and be happy and survive. You should be able to uh, push other people away, to step on them, to murder them. Who cares? You got to do what you got to do. Why do you have a conscience? Now, uh, when I was going through my burnout experience, uh, you know, years ago, I began to, as I've shared before, began to dabble with atheism. I was disillusioned about God. I didn't believe he was loving, and then I didn't believe he was at all. I tried to ignore God. I tried to live as if he didn't exist. And the thing that I kept coming back to is, where does my conscience come from? Why do I have a conscience? My mom used to always say, uh, you know, if you don't live your conscience, you're just an animal. You just eat, and then you wipe your mouth, and you're done. Just wipe your mouth. Just consume others. Consume life. Do whatever you got to do, and then just wipe your mouth. Be done. You'll have no memory of it. It doesn't affect you going into the future. It doesn't alter you in any way. You're just a creature. And yet, I couldn't do that. And I tried to discern if it was my Christian formation that was still sort of baggage hanging on to me. And I came to the distinct conclusion that, no, I think I have a conscience. And I believe this conscience is the image of God. And this conscience is continually being informed by an outside presence that, I, that is not me. It's different than me. So live your conscience. And under your conscience, the second piece of advice he gives is live your life well. He says in verse 15 and following, so I recommend the enjoyment of life. This is the best advice the Bible has ever given us. 
This isn't thou shall not. Those are boring. Who wants to thou shall not? So if, you, if you're enjoying your life and people accuse you of enjoying your life, point them to this verse. The Bible told me to enjoy my life, right? So I recommend the enjoyment of life, for there is nothing better on earth for a person to do except to eat, drink, and enjoy life. So joy will accompany him in his toil during the days of his life, which God gives him on earth. When I try to gain wisdom and to observe the activity on earth, even though it prevents anyone from sleeping day or night, then I discerned all that God has done. No one really comprehends what happens on earth. Despite all human efforts to discover it, no one can ever grasp it. Even if a wise person claimed that he understood, he would not really comprehend it. You can't know what's happening you can't know why it's happening. You don't know what is going to happen. And you can't know why it's going to happen. Therefore, his recommendation is just live your life well. You figure out how you are going to be happy. Don't worry about other people's happiness, that's their responsibility. Don't worry about other people's conscience. You worry about your conscience. You worry about the way you lead yourself. Um, <clears throat> One more quote from Viktor Frankl. He says this. I forgot to put it in the slides for you. Let me read it for us. He says, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you are going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so at the unintended side effect, as, a, as the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen. And, at the same, and the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. I want you to listen to what your conscience commands you to do and go on to carry it out to the best of your knowledge. Then you will live to see that in the long run, in the long run, I say, success will follow you precisely because you had forgotten to think about it at all. What Victor is saying is the same thing. Live your conscience, and under your conscience, live your life well. Don't worry about other people's lives. Don't try to control others. Don't try too hard to change the system. You live your life. You take responsibility for yourself. If you want to make excuses, there are no shortage of excuses you can make. If you want to displace blame and you want to shun responsibility, if you want to stay upset, if you want to justify your paralysis, your inertia, or your passivity, there's no shortage of ways to do that. On the other hand, instead of making excuses, you can take action. You can understand that you are responsible my favorite metaphor for thinking about this is the metaphor of playing chess. Imagine what it would be like if you're playing the game of chess 
and you're just sitting there and you spend all of your time and energy being upset about your opponent's move. The point of chess is to be aware of your opponent's move, but really to spend the majority of your focus on planning your move. You play chess. And this is the message of the preacher here today. Lots of powers at work, but you focus on you. You take responsibility for yourself. You obey your conscience. You do your life well. You play chess. I came across this passage as I was studying this idea, and uh, he lays it out kind of beautifully, and what he says is this. If you don't understand that you are responsible for your own life, and you don't think about life as you playing chess, and it's your move, and if you don't understand that you have to keep your conscience and live your life well, the alternative, this author says, is Murder. So let me read you the psychology of this. He says this. The first result of the fall in human relationships was covering up. And the second, blame shifting. The third will be murder. Cain's competition with Abel connects violence, discord, and human self-justification. After the fall, a sense of shame and failure sets in. Our desire to think of ourselves as people like Abel, the righteous victim, is the same desire of Adam when he claimed to be a victim at the hands of Eve. The ethical component of the story is not thou shall not kill. The only application of this passage would be see yourself in Cain. Recognize his self-justifying image in you. Human justice often functions on the assumption that the human race can remain functional and moral as long as we sequester, punish, or kill the bad people out there. This assumes that they are the problem and we are not. Such dualisms are tempting to buy into because believing in categories of conservatives and liberals, saints and sinners, black and white, Jew and Gentile, educated and uneducated, allows us to be on the correct side of such divides. While justice in terms of punishment, imprisonment, etc. is necessary in many cases, that necessity does not somehow cancel the self-justifying component of human justice. Murder and along with it, blame-shifting, self-justification, etc., arises from the need to distance ourselves from our identity as sinners. The opposite is admitting this identity, hugging the cactus in the language of Alcoholics Anonymous. While the stories in Genesis aim to communicate varying emotional truths, they they almost always invite us to identify with the figure of the sinner, Distancing ourselves from sinfulness only repeats the sins of Adam and Cain, or as Jesus later puts it, with the judgment you make, you will be judged. As dark as this may sound at first, the strand of Judaism he founded ultimately taught that identifying with sin is the one way humanity might overcome it. What the author is saying is that from the very beginning of time, The basic human problem is that we refuse to take responsibility for our own sinfulness. We refuse to lead ourselves. We refuse to live our conscience and refuse to live under our conscience and lead a life well lived. Instead, we focus on the faults of the other person. And so Adam, he blamed Eve instead of taking responsibility for himself. 
Eve made me do it, he said. And Cain did the same thing. When God rejected his sacrifice but accepted his brother Abel's sacrifice, instead of taking responsibility for his own shortcomings, what did Cain do? He focused on Abel and said, it's Abel's fault. I will kill him, and if I kill him, I can be happy. And so he focused his energy on his opponent's move rather than on his own move. So let me uh, simplify all of this for us. There are powers that we're up against all day long. There are authorities, there are people, there are bad people, there's injustice. That's the reality of life. That's the dark and sad and unfortunate truth so far about how our world is. And the great temptation there is to feel like a victim under all of this power. It's so easy to focus on other people and say, this person is a source of my unhappiness. If only they would change, if only they would stop, if only they would start. If only so-and-so would go away. And when you start focusing on all these other powers, rather than on focusing living your life well, eventually you have to murder, just as Cain did, just as Adam did. You have to throw other people under the bus. It's always somebody else's fault. You know friends like this, you have family members like this. You have coworkers like this who always have some sob story to tell. They're always the victim or the hero. They're never quite taking responsibility for themselves. It's always easy to blame others and stay passive. It's always to displace responsibility and remain in some state of inertia. I can't. I'm waiting. I'm hoping. But you're not doing anything. And so the preacher says, rather than focusing on these powers, yes, the king's authority is absolute. Yes, there are wicked people always approaching. And yet, he says, you stand in fear of God. You obey your conscience. And you do the thing that will make you happy. You go find joy. Don't be unhappy and then blame other people. You find joy. You be the joy. That's what he says. Now, this is what the preacher says, and this is the Old Testament. And uh, I want to know, are you able to do that? Now, if I just read this passage, there's no way I can do that. I don't have the power or the consistency within myself to be the kind of person that can always live my conscience and take responsibility for myself and find my own joy, eat, drink, and be merry? I have the perfect solution for your unhappiness. Ready? Stop it. Go be happy. That doesn't work. And this is where the gospel comes in. This is the good news. And before we get to that, I want to give you uh, two application points. Uh, and then I want to conclude uh, landing on Christ. The first application point is make restitution. Make restitution. 
Do what you can according to your conscience to pay your debts. Now, this was a really powerful insight for me this week. Uh, We had a little thing in our family where uh, one of our kids uh, uh, practiced deceit, and they tricked one of their siblings and uh, took advantage of a situation, and there was a kind of ickiness that filled the room. And uh, waited uh, overnight, and the next day confronted this uh, child, and we talked about it. And uh, the conversation went something like this. Uh, what do you think, uh, uh, how do you feel after you did what you did? And the answer was, I feel bad. Uh, what do you want to do about it? Uh, I want to say sorry. Is that all you want to do? How can we make this right? Uh, let's reverse it as much as we can. So we reversed it. What else can you do to acknowledge that uh, you really betrayed trust and hurt your sister's feelings? Uh, give her $5 of my money. I said, great, let's do that. And so we did all those things and we paid the debt. And then suddenly all of that darkness and murkiness left the room and everybody was sort of uh, dialed up to 9 or 10 in happiness and mood again. And here's the insight that I gathered from this. When wrong is done, when you have violated your conscience, somebody has to pay the debt. When the debt is paid, finally, there can be some restoration of joy. And that's why Jesus had to die. And I'm not sure about all of the atonement theories out there and what actually happened when Jesus died on the cross. But this one small part I understand a little bit more of after this week, that Jesus somehow paid the debt that we owe, and for the sake of including everybody in this room, I'm going to say the debt we owe the universe. Because a lot of the wrongs we do, we don't know who we're wronging exactly. But every time you violate your conscience, there is some debt that has to be paid. And my application point to you is to do what you can to pay your debts, to make things right. Don't just resolve your conscience uh, on an emotional level, but take action to pay your debt. And as you do that, be reminded that Jesus also paid your debt. Uh, The second is make happy. According to your conscience, figure out how you are going to be happy. And part of the story that we read today is this. When you're going to be happy, the preacher says, when you're making yourself happy, the reason you're doing that is because all the days of your life are going to be filled with toil. That's his word, choice. Alongside toil, the preacher's desire is that you have joy alongside the toil. So I want you to make the relationship between suffering and happiness uh, very intimate. It's one and the same. And this is a new insight I had this week, that to get to happy, you have to go through suffering. That suffering and happiness are not opposites. But one is a means to the other. And so when the, whenever the Bible talks about you being happy or you being joyful, it's not saying just directly aim at happiness, but it's saying figure out how you're going to suffer well so that on the other side of 
suffering, there you will find true happiness. Here's another um, quote uh, from um, the uh, meaning of life. It says this, Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. In any experience of suffering, you have the capacity to find joy in that suffering and through that suffering. So those are the two application points. Make restitution and make happy through suffering. I want to close uh, with another uh, uh, quote. It says this, For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I want to tell you that um, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, I have come to the conclusion that even though wisdom tells me that I have to be responsible and I have to obey my conscience, I have to suffer well and figure out how to find love in this world, that ultimately those principles and that wisdom, it's not describing how I'm to live my life, but it's describing who Jesus was. I want you to know that if you are a follower of Christ, you are acknowledging and worshiping the lone person who took full responsibility for humanity's condition. And he took on the consequences of our violation of our conscience. And he suffered on our behalf so that he can find a way to save us through his love. All of the wisdom that we read about in the book of Ecclesiastes, all of the principles we studied in the last series in the book of Philippians about happiness, none of that primarily applies to us. It first and foremost is a description of Jesus Christ himself. I want to tell you that if I had to choose four keys of life, I realized this is what I would write down. If I wanted to pass on four keys to life, I would tell my children, be responsible. Understand that you are responsible. And I would say, always obey your conscience. As far as you can, as far as it depends on you, live your conscience. Figure out how to be happy, not in spite of suffering, but through suffering so that you can get to the place of love. Now, all of that, I want to advise to my children. But really, it's captured in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is why we serve him and love him and put our trust in him. As we study these principles, recognize that ultimately this isn't about you or me, but it is about Christ. Would you pray with me?
Father, I'm thankful that um, your word acknowledges the harshness of life, the harsh reality that there are powers at work all around us. And really, up against that, we are powerless. And yet, uh, because uh, Christ has taken responsibility, because Christ has borne the consequence for the violation of our conscience, because Christ suffers on our behalf so that he is able to love us, we can have hope in this world. We, too, can take responsibility for our lives. We, too, can obey our conscience. We, too, can suffer well onto joy and learn how to love and to be loved. So we worship you because you are worthy, and we worship you because you are the meaning of life. You personify all that we aspire to. You fulfill within yourself the whole law by which we live. So we worship you as God, as Savior. We look to you today in Jesus' name. Amen.